0: you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business, and I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Ilad Gil, one of Silicon Valley's most endearing operators and investors. Ilad really needs no introduction. He's been integral in some of the most interesting and iconic companies in the Valley. After fulfilling a PhD at MIT and a brief stint at McKinsey, Ilad went on to join Google and Twitter through their hypergrowth years. Salad's the founder and former CEO of Color Genomics, and he's invested in over 20 companies valued today at over a billion dollars, including Airbnb, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, Opendoor, Pinterest, Square, Stripe, and Wish. This episode was a ton of fun. I talked to Ilad about his perspective on industry towns, why there aren't that many founders that come out of Amazon, Microsoft, or Apple, his genomics research, how he evaluates companies, and what are the most counterintuitive principles he's taken away from investing in over 20 unicorns. Elad, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for uh, including me today. Yeah, so Ilad, really excited to have you on the show today and dive you know, pretty deeply into your perspectives on a couple topics, industry towns. Non-obvious insights from investing in startups, leadership, and and finishing off with your longevity research. But before that, tell us a little bit more about your background. You know, you've had a wide variety of experiences over the last decade, um, both as an operator and as an investor.
1: Started off effectively uh, working at a couple startups, and then I joined Google. And at Google, I really helped start up the mobile efforts. So I was involved with buying Android and putting together the early teams and products for mobile maps and mobile Gmail. And then I left to um, start my first company data infrastructure company that was bought by Twitter. At the time, Twitter is about 90 people, so I helped scale it to about 1,500 people over two and a half years, Um, stuck around for another year as an advisor, and then started another company called Color Genomics, which is a big data meets uh, genomics tech company. Uh, I was CEO for a little over three years and then stepped down about three years ago. Uh, In parallel, uh, I've been a pretty active investor, so I'm involved with about 20 companies that are worth a billion dollars or more. I invested in 14 or 15 of them at the seed or Series A, uh, and that includes companies like Airbnb, Airtable, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, um, Open Door, PagerDuty, Pinterest, Stripe, uh, Wish, and others.
0: And so, a lot. How have you thought about your own career? Right, it's really interesting to kind of hear you reflect on that because you've obviously had. Uh, the experience, you know, as an as an operator at you know someone else's company, and especially at Twitter, being a, a key part of scaling the company. You founded your own company, and then obviously you've you've done a lot of investing. So how have you thought about you know your own career with such a wide set of experiences over the last decade?
1: I think a lot of the motivators for me have been more high level things than um, specific things. Although there are specific goals or things that I wanted to do as well that were very tactical that we can talk about. So. At a high level, um, I'm very much a techno-optimist and I basically view technology to be a force for good in the world and something that can really impact the lives of people for the better. And so a lot of my career was just um, driven by asking, how can I do things that are really meaningful or impactful for people? So, you know, I actually started off going and getting a PhD in biology and working on um, cancer and longevity research in the lab, Um, but I quickly realized that at least uh, for my own skill set and my own set of experiences that I wanted to derive working in technology would be the best way for me to accomplish things at at large scale in terms of reaching and helping people. Um, And so my big motivators were that, uh, doing something useful with my life and then working with really great people. And it sounds really generic, but those were really my drivers. And what that initially meant was I wanted to start a company. Um, I wanted to work on products um, that would reach, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of people. I wanted to, at some point in my career, run a large team and I wanted, at some point in my career, to to be the CEO of a startup. And so, those were sort of the goals that I had in terms of um, the the specific things that I was hoping to do at one point or another.
0: And you've talked about, you know, how one of the key components when when you advise other folks on uh, kind of thinking about their their careers and something you've you've talked a lot about in your own is, you know, really really building a network, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot of conversation about building a good network, but you've you've had an interesting perspective on it, especially tied to location. You you recently wrote a post on industry towns and, you know, why the best place to start a startup today is still Silicon Valley, you know, despite the narrative that's pervasive in, in media. Talk a little bit more, you know, about your concept of industry towns and then maybe we can break that mm-hmm. down in, into more detail.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, so I guess uh, in terms of what I would advise people from a career perspective, uh, to your point, the key things are uh, being in a, in the right network, you know, all the people who are at Google early on are doing great things in terms of being CEOs of different com- COOs of different companies or starting companies or doing other things like that. And you see this with network after network. I think Stripe is sort of the network du jour um, right now in terms of just amazing people who are going to do ridiculous things over their careers. Um, part of that is like, what market or industry do you go to? And part of that is, are you in an area that's growing in terms of a market segment? So you have to choose something for that. And the specific role you have or how much money you make tends not to matter as much early on in your career. I think the location that you're in um, really reflects multiple aspects of that. In other words, if you want to go into tech, you want to go into the area or the city that's booming the most from a tech perspective. You want to go to the place with the best network and you want to go to a place where all the market and industry segments are represented. And So that really means Silicon Valley. Um, I think the in general, there's long been this notion of... Um, you know, industry clusters where, you know, I can't remember as Michael Porter or somebody else who basically wrote a lot about how, if you look at different industries, it could be automotive, it could be wineries, it could be, um, you know, uh, movie making, they tend to all cluster in very specific regions of the world. You know, there's the South of France and Napa and parts of Australia for winemaking, uh, for movies, it's Lagos and Hollywood and, um, you know for each uh, market, it's a different um, set of locations: finance, Hong Kong, Shanghai, New York, London, et cetera. Uh, for technology, um, the really big clusters are effectively Silicon Valley, uh, so the broader Bay Area. Um, it's parts of Bangalore, maybe bits of Delhi um, in India, it's largely Beijing and then there's secondary cult- uh, places like Shenzhen and the like. In China, uh, and in Europe, it's sort of London and you know maybe a little bit of Berlin, maybe a little bit of Sweden. Um, and so really, and we can go on, you know, and lot La- in Nigeria, it's Lagos, et cetera. So, uh, you know, for each, um, uh, sort of geographic region, there's, there's a key cluster that is the best place to be if you're in that region, but overall for the world, there's like two or three spots that if you want to be in technology, you should really go to them. And, um, the, the reason is that you have great exposure to a variety of different things, including. Um, you know, that's where all the other, um, not all, but most, many of the other really talented and ambitious people are going. So, from a talent network perspective, it's important. You'll get a much broader range of experiences because of the companies that are represented. Often, you'll get early customers or partnerships there because a lot of technology companies buy from each other or work together early. Uh, there's more capital um, available in those markets. So, almost everything that you want to do relative to that market tends to be strengthened in a cluster. And you see that reflected in numbers. So, if you actually look at the data around, um, you know, where are all the uh, technology unicorns based and unicorns are sort of, you know, billion dollar or more market cap companies, they tend to be lagging indicators because those companies tend to be a couple years old in terms of from when they were started. But in general, Silicon Valley um, or the Bay Area is on the order of almost 10x bigger than any other cluster in the U.S., for example. Um, If you take, for example, we work out of New York because we work isn't really quite a technology company. then it's, it's about a, a, a six or seven X bigger cluster. So, um, And then after that, it drops off dramatically. You know, L.A. is maybe a tenth to a twelfth the size of Silicon Valley. Uh, and then everything sort of lags from there. So there are these very strong um, power law rules to sort of where are the most important tech clusters. And uh, the interesting thing is that the discourse today is that you, know, you should be able to start a tech company anywhere and therefore you don't need to go to Silicon Valley anymore and it's so expensive there and there's all these terrible things about it. And while it is a very expensive place and while you can start a technology company anywhere, um, I do think that from a career perspective and a likelihood of building an outsized or massive company, if you're a founder, the best place to go is, um, is Silicon Valley. And the types of arguments people make about why you should go to Silicon Valley um, could be made about almost any industry. So for example, people say, well, you could remote you could work remotely and write code from anywhere or design a product from anywhere so you don't need to be in the Bay Area. Or um, you know, you can uh, find customers all over the world. So why should you be in the Bay Area? And you can make the same arguments about the movie industry. You can write a script from anywhere. You often direct off-site so you don't have to be in Hollywood. Uh, you can digitally edit the movie afterwards. You can add the film score. You can actually do most things virtually for film, for finance, for many other industries. Um, but in reality, if you wanna have a great career in the movie industry, you go to Hollywood, you don't come to the Bay Area. So I, I think uh, the same sort of logic holds um, irrespective of the market.
0: And so how do you think about, so the natural network effect makes complete sense, right? Concentration, key talent, know-how. I mean, in the in the case of tech, obviously fundraising. At what point, and you alluded to it, right, at what point does the cost outweigh the benefit? So, you know, personally, having lived in the Bay Area, having been an early stage Series A startup, you know, you you kind of see that a significant – we had raised about $15 million. A significant amount of that was going – to perks and san francisco landlords right and it's becoming yeah. prohibitively harder to to operate you know from a kind of from an early startup employee maybe that hasn't made mm-hmm. necessarily that traction you know cost of living homelessness and the local infrastructure and so that mindset of scarcity you know has mm-hmm. all sorts of counter effects and so I, i'm curious you know from your perspective how do you how do you kind of counterbalance that reality on the ground which is mm-hmm. to say that the operating environment, even if that, you know, the remaining part of the infrastructure is there, some of these key issues in sure. the ground, right, especially for first-time entrants, you know, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you combat that? Or how do you really, frankly, operate through kind of optimal levels of creativity, et cetera, when, you know, there's mm-hmm. kind of this scarcity aspect you have to deal with that, you know, wasn't necessarily there, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 years ago? Sure.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I definitely think the biggest threat to the Bay Area is just poor governance, um, and in particular, poor governance in San Francisco. The flip side of it is 10 years ago, almost all the interesting startups were down in the peninsula in South Bay. Hmm. So the fact that there are all these companies in San Francisco is a pretty recent phenomena. The last time there were a lot of Fortune 500 companies in San Francisco, I think was in the 70s. And during that era, my sense is, um, the city government started raising taxes and they all lapped except for McKesson. So um, <laughs> the city kind of blew it once before, but most people forget about it or forgotten about it. Um, So in reality, I think the Bay Area will thrive. Whether San Francisco will still be the core area that everybody's going to be in is uncertain. You know, like over a five-year time horizon, I think it still will be over a 10-year time horizon. I'm not sure. But I think the Bay Area itself, the broader Bay Area will continue to be a cluster. And that means that either people will spill over into Oakland and the East Bay, uh, where things are cheaper today, or they may spill over um, more into South San Francisco, Daly City, Millbrae, that sort of area. Um, Every company I've started has actually been in either uh, Burlingame or San Mateo. And our first location was right on the border of Burlingame and Mowbray. And we were paying you know, a fifth the rent of any other startup that I know. Uh, and it's still extremely cheap there and nobody's going there. And so I think there's a lot of, um, at least commercial real estate that's cheaper than people know of. I think the housing problem is a real problem sort of throughout the Bay Area. There are some less expensive areas still like Mowbray and, and a few others, but. You know, I think ultimately um, that's something that needs to get fixed over time. And I think the sort of uh, city government in the Bay Area that embraces a willingness to build and to expand will be a long-term winner in terms of where the technology companies set up over time. Uh, If you think about it, San Francisco has one of the best opportunities in the world in terms of being one of the great metropolitan centers. It has a giant tax base now because of the companies that have moved in. It has a highly educated workforce it traditionally has had a thriving art scene although that's very much being driven out um, by a lack of affordable housing uh, and it, i think it's still rescuable so i think if um, san francisco acted soon it could become one of the great cities on earth i think if it doesn't act we'll continue to see um, increases in housing prices we'll see increases in homelessness petty crime et cetera. And it'll be an unfortunately um, missed opportunity in terms of being one of the great cities of the
0: world. When you think about other you know, other cities or so, right? So from the Bay Area, I moved back to Atlanta where I'm originally from. And in other cities around the US, right? The conversation, especially in tech is basically how do we become the Silicon Valley of X, right? Mm-hmm. So New York, the Silicon Alley, and down here folks try to call it the Silicon Peach, right? Whatever it uh-huh. might be, right? And I, I think there's an interesting kind of misnomer almost in the framing, which is, Silicon as the as the precursor is you're trying to become something else, right? Whereas mm-hmm. my my thought process has always been you have to double down on the unique strengths of your ecosystem. What do you mm-hmm. what do you think are the things if you take the flip side, which is what sure. are what are the aspects that actually prevent, you know, some of these other cities or so let's say you have the engineering talent, this, that, and the other. Sure. What are the other pieces that prevent you know other major cities from becoming, you know, a Silicon Valley or a Bay Area?
1: Yeah. I think I would separate out two concepts. Um, what allows you to become a big cluster and will you have local successes? And I think one of the big shifts that's happened on the Internet over the last 10 years is the proportion of time humanity spends online has shifted. And so uh, Internet or online markets are basically 10 times bigger than they were 10 years ago. If you just add up the number of people online, we're now at almost half of humanity having access to a smartphone or a computer. The amount of time that each uh, adult in the U.S., for example, spends online on average has gone up two, 3x. Um, you sort of look at every metric, metric, Wi-Fi penetration, smartphones, et cetera. every metric is up dramatically, which means that uh, the ability to scale and reach a giant market online is larger than we've ever seen in the history of humanity. And what that means is that a company that was a $10 or $20 million niche software business 10 years ago today could be a $100, $200 million online business, which means it could be a $1 or $2 billion market cap SaaS company. And so I think uh, one big shift that we're going to see and we've already started to see is more and more cities around the world are going to have billion-dollar-plus companies, and the driver of that is the fact that you suddenly have this global online liquidity to the Internet. You can suddenly reach, you know, millions of businesses online or or billions of people online. Um, So from that perspective, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of local and regional successes as sort of one-offs. The hard part is getting to that magic mix of, Um, founders and capital and ideas and distribution and know-how and service providers, like great lawyers who understand actual terms and things like that. And it's interesting because in the 80s, um, Boston was sort of neck and neck with the Bay Area as sort of the technology leader. And really, the technology scene in Boston um, has sort of shrunk relative to Silicon Valley, which has sort of boomed. And their um, biotech, and in particular, biopharma is very strong. And they've had a similar sort of cluster effect where they have the university system and academics, they've had pharma companies set up shop nearby, which is sort of accelerated new biotech, which has led to even more investment by pharma there. And so you have these virtuous cycles that get created. And it's very hard for me to imagine what that virtuous cycle is um, for many regions. Often what you need is an anchor company that can retain people locally, and then you need an ecosystem of angels and other investors uh, you need the service providers and then you need executives who can come in and help scale things up or really take companies to the next level and talking to a number of different European founders I know one of the complaints they often have is that they there aren't as many people who know how to scale software businesses in Europe and so it's, you know, talent is scarcer and sometimes I feel like that's the thing that's limiting their growth potential. So, I, you know, I, I don't know that there's like a single solution. I think you have to change a bunch of stuff to be able to create a new cluster and most people who've tried to do that Um, systematically through government or other efforts have have largely failed. And so often it just kind of has to happen organically. Like the rise of New York may be be a good example of sort of an organic shift where New York is sort of number two now when traditionally, you know, 20 years ago it, it was maybe third or fourth place.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of this is, of course, there's elements of kind of this virtuous cycle and there's, there's a lot of moving parts, but the anchor company, kind of piece that spawns off talent, retains talent, becomes becomes a huge aspect. I'm, I'm curious if you kind of think of, when I think of kind of the counter example to that, the first kind of city that pops in my mind is Seattle. And Seattle has mm-hmm. a, a great tech community, nothing wrong with it, but especially for having kind of an Amazon and Microsoft, mm-hmm. I would expect kind of a, a bigger entrenchment or, or so. Mm-hmm. When you think of kind of anchor company, do you think of it not as necessarily like a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter, etc.? Do you think of it more as a, Actually, as I'm saying that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of shifting my thought because what I was about to say was, do you think of it kind of as a foundational startup, but obviously all of these companies start as startups, right? So how, how do you kind of mm-hmm. think about you know, if, you, if you think about kind of that example and potentially other cities that have had kind of similar situations, what what's the element? Is it just another missing piece of the virtuous cycle or what are, what are kind of the elements? You know that prevents some of those areas from taking off.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because there are a series of companies out of which you almost never see founders. Um, I've, I don't I have, I've seen mm. very, very few founders out of Amazon. I've seen a few but not a ton of founders out of Microsoft. It's often people who were at Microsoft for a bit and then went somewhere else and then started a company. And actually, Apple in the Bay Area is kind of like that. There aren't that many Apple founders when all is set it down or ex Apple founders, especially relative to the size of the company. And then you see these small networks of people where everybody's starting a company. Mm. Um, you know PayPal is sort of the canonical example, sure. um, although I think that's a little bit overstated relative to the population. In other words, like with PayPal, I think the really interesting thing was they spawned some amazing companies and ridiculous success, and it's one of the most impressive group of people. If you look at who started all the companies, it was actually the executive team at PayPal. It was Reed Hoffman, who was an FCP. It was Peter Thiel who was a CEO. It was Elon Musk, who was CEO. It was Matt Slefgen, who was the CTO. It was Jeremy Stoppelman, who was a VPN, who started Yelp. And so if you look at the group of people out of PayPal, with the exception of YouTube, everything was started by the executive team. And there are actually very few startups started by the rank and file. And I've always wondered why that is. Um, if you look at a lot of other startup networks, it's usually the rank and file who start things, and it's the executive team who kind of sticks around or who just got too rich and you know kind of retire or become investors or whatever, maybe. Hmm. Um, And so uh, there are these really interesting dynamics in terms of the pools of people who are at startups or at larger companies who then go off and do interesting things as a cohort or group. And sometimes these things often happen in waves. You know, there was a first wave of ex-Facebook companies like Asana and uh, Quora and the like. And then I think a couple years later, there was a second wave that came out. Uh, And that's companies like Whisper and Threads and, you know, a lot of the sort of activity that's happening now in terms of ex-Facebook founders. So um, you do see these generational waves as well. And I don't know what the driver necessarily is. I think sometimes you just end up with a very entrepreneurial group of people because you select for that culturally. I think sometimes it's a level of success. I think sometimes it's you're in a new industry or market. So suddenly that cohort of people goes and really dominates that market segment because there's nobody else to do it. And they understand it really well. It's sort of like all the ex-Uber people who are working on transportation startups right now, like Lime and, and Bird, have a lot of ex-Uber people or ex-Uber Unlip people. So, um, you know, I think there's a couple of different drivers, but it's unclear to me why Seattle never had that same um, sort of entrepreneurial fever.
0: That's a really interesting take, and I, I don't think I actually ever took the kind of bird's eye view of how many founders are coming. You're right, kind of when I think about it also, in terms of founders that you see, you know, of course, you see kind of the canonical set out of Facebook, Google... The Ubers, et cetera, now. But you're you're right. I, I don't really recall seeing that same kind of dearth out of a uh, a Microsoft and Amazon, and an Apple. I'm curious, kind of, when you you know you've you've obviously clearly had a lot of success in investing in a bunch of these iconoclastic companies. What are what are some of the non-obvious you know things or kind of non-intuitive factors? If we switch gear a little bit, switch gears a little bit, mm-hmm. and, and kind of focus on focus on your perspectives on on investing. What are what are mm-hmm. some of the kind of non-obvious things that you've seen that have been correlated with some of the successful startups you've been involved with?
1: Yeah, it's, in, it's, it's a really interesting question because um, great startups are almost definitionally non-obvious when they start. In other words, if it was an obvious idea, everybody would be doing it, and there'd be no startup opportunity. So most startups have to start from a, an odd point, either in terms of being a niche product or something that people don't believe in, or an early market, or an overly crowded market that looks over, and then this entry comes in and does something a little bit different. Um, so most of them are not obvious Uh, I think for me, the biggest, um, uh, non-obvious characteristics include characteristics of founders and characteristics of on markets on the founder side, I think, you know, so say that you were to reference check an employee, um, if you give an employee, uh, if, if an employee had a negative reference check, you wouldn't hire them, right? you would say, you know what, this just isn't going to work out. If you reference check a founder and it's negative, um, it isn't necessarily a negative signal, it's a neutral signal. Obviously a positive reference check is a very positive signal. But one of the things I've learned as an investor is, um, you know, there's a number of companies that I didn't get involved with because the, the founders just reference checked as lazy or not very driven or not that good at certain things. And then they really sort of up-leveled it um, as a founder and suddenly went and built an amazing company Or alternatively, they just kind of happened upon a great market from a product market fit perspective. And there's a really interesting question of what defines a great founder. Is it the ability to run something or is it the ability to find a market niche that nobody else has found, even if it's by accident? And one can argue that to build a great company, you need both characteristics. And often that's represented in two people, sort of like Steve Jobs and Wozniak, right? Wozniak was the sort of innovator and Jobs was the builder in some sense. and so every startup to get massive needs both. But if you ask what's really needed to succeed as a company or as a technology startup, most of the time you need the person who can find product market fit before you need, you need the person who can really operate well. And I think where a lot of investors get confused is they fund a lot of people who can operate really well and then they just don't end up with good companies because they aren't able to find product market fit. So, you know, that that is one characteristic of teams that I think is sort of important and under talked about.
0: You've talked about, you know, of course, you know, when when investors focus on, on companies, there's kind of the classic triage of focusing on market product and team. And, and everybody has their, you know, their different skew, you know, over which which they favor the most. I want you to talk about a little bit more about your focus on market, because that's you know, that's your kind of prime focus. I had Andy Radcliffe on on the show probably about a year ago or so. And something he said always stuck with me, which was kind of this idea of, you know, if you have a really great market, but you have a bad team, you know, the market's going to win. If you have a really great team but a really bad market, the market's going to win. But if you have a really great team and you have a really great market, then something magical happens. So talk mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about kind of your perspective and skew towards uh, focusing on market the most. You know, out of those out of those three um, uh, three pieces.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a very big believer in um, what some people are now calling Rakoff's law of startups, which, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm I uh, definitely have seen play out over and over again. And so for me, the real question uh, is what I'd call product market. So, you know, are they building the right product for the market and is the market one that has characteristics that will allow that product to thrive and succeed and get sold and, um, and all the rest of it. And then, you know, one concept I've been thinking about a lot recently is what I call the effective market size of a market. So a lot of people talk about the market size, the market sizes get a little bit fuzzy in terms of how you define them, you know, like the, um, the market for e-commerce is two trillion dollars a year or or, you know god knows what and therefore it's a massive market but in reality if you're building an online site for paper cups you know it's just it's not really the the entire two trillion dollar market or whatever the dollar amount is and so people often sort of misstate market sizes or position things as bigger um, or in some cases smaller than they are and for me effective market is effectively what are the set of customers that you can serve And how effective is your product in reaching those customers? In other words, what channels have you developed relative to that? And that really defines the velocity at which you can grow in a market and how big you can get as a company. It's really a mix of product and sales or go to market channel. uh, And that effectively nets out into what market are you in? Um, And so I think for me, that's often the most important thing. What are you building? Who's gonna buy it? How are you gonna sell it to them? How do you distribute it? And are there early signs that there's a positive uh, version of that coming true.
0: One of the things I often see and kind of feel in the in the tech community is this idea, taking this idea of, you know, first principles approach mm-hmm. um, too far, right? And so I'm, I'm curious actually, you know, first principles of course has, has a, is, a, is a great kind of theorem to think through, especially obviously as you're starting a startup. But mm-hmm. I'm curious from your perspective, right, again, having kind of seen not only successful startups being found, great founders, but really kind of this hyper-growth phase and these hyper-growth scales. When you observe, you know, the companies that you're involved with, what do you think has actually, you know, not changed all that much throughout the course of of business or history that startups and tech, you know, underweight, right? So what I mean by that is really trying to reinvent the wheel, you know, when when no reinvention is needed.
1: Yeah, there's a few things that... um... Really smart creative founders, especially if they're very technical, tend to try and reinvent. Usually the, the two areas that they try to reinvent the most are sales and HR. And in most cases, they should just leave those things alone. So um, and obviously there's innovations to be had in terms of growth marketing or sure. bottoms-up distribution or other things, but you know, when all is said and done, there's reasons that salespeople have comp fans and you hire them a certain way and you test them a certain way, and you know, you target certain size companies if you have certain um, cost structure to your sales and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, I think that's the area that has the biggest amount of reinvention. And I think part of that may be almost like a bias against uh, people with liberal arts backgrounds and thinking, well, if you know, if an engineer hasn't designed it, then maybe it's no good. And, you know, I know my customers better than anyone else and therefore I can reach them better than anyone else. And I think in reality, sales is a giant sort of process engineering optimization problem that's been optimized over decades. And really good enterprise sales or mid-market sales has actually been um, codified uh, in a number of ways by a number of people. But that knowledge just isn't as broadly available or accessible to first-time founders. And I think it's something where you definitely don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, One other thing around the effective market size, if I can go back to that, one way to get a proxy in terms of what your effective market size is, is the growth rate that you have as a company. and so you know, if you want to build a venture scale business, which is different from running, just running a business. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to just run a business. Not everybody should go and raise venture capital, but if you want to run a venture backed business, if you're doing a million or even 5 million in revenue and you're growing 30 to to 50% year over year, um, you either lack the right product um, or you lack the right go to market and sales. In other words, the growth rate that you have is a proxy for your effective market size. And if you're not growing very fast, either your market is really small which mean, or your product sucks or your go-to-market isn't right. And so often um, you should be able to tell as, as soon as a year or two after launch whether your product is going to work and whether you're in a big enough market. And if things aren't growing, you know, if they're not at least doubling year over year at a million or five million in revenue, you need to really tweak the product or you really need to tweak the go-to-market or you need to do something else if you want to build a venture-scale business. And I think that's kind of under talked about in terms of metrics because there's so much capital around today that most companies can get funded irrespective of their growth rate simply because of um, the story that they have and the fact that there's a lot of capital that wants to fund good stories.
0: Well, and, and I want you to talk about that a little bit more because you, you, you have a couple couple thoughts on this that really resonate with me that you've talked about before. So one, one is kind of this idea of, especially with cheap capital, and kind of the allure of storytelling, the mistake that uh, angels or, or investors make in operating, uh, sorry, investing in companies that you know have a PowerPoint deck but haven't really kind of built something or gotten uh, gotten a little bit of traction or gotten something off the ground. You have an interesting perspective on kind of what that says. Even getting something off the ground that's kind of janky or not perfect says about mentality of offenders. So I want you to talk about that a little bit. And then the other piece that I thought was counter, that I think is counterintuitive that you've talked about, before is is kind of this perspective that if something's gonna work, it's gonna work quickly. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. right, there are caveats around it with the enterprise, hard science challenges, et cetera, but I, I think that does speak to a pretty interesting sentiment and it goes against kind of the grain of, you know, it takes, you know, 10 years 12 years, et cetera. It, it takes those periods of time to build kind of massive, massive businesses. Mm-hmm. But you have a you have kind of an interesting perspective there on, you know, if it's going to work, it's going to work pretty quickly. So talk, talk about, you know, those topics a little bit more.
1: Sure. Yeah, I know. So I think, um, you know, to your point, there's a lot of money sloshing around, which means that, um, you know, people are getting funded to keep going on companies that perhaps they should give up on. And in that case, I really worry about the founders because, the founders are getting locked in on a five or 10 year journey when really they should maybe give up and sell the company or shut it down and go on to the next thing. And so the opportunity cost is so high and sort of the prime of your life when you can start companies. And instead you're just slaving away at something that isn't very good because somebody showed up and wrote you a check and you thought therefore your idea had been validated. If you think about it in a capital poor environment, the best advice that you can give a founder is keep going no matter what, because capital raising is going to be really hard and you have to grind through it. And you know, if you can finally make it over the hill, you can raise more money or be profitable and keep going and scale. Um, And so the default in a capital poor environment is to give up maybe when you shouldn't. In a capital rich environment, the default is to keep going probably when you shouldn't. It's sort of the opposite because there's so much money around that you just keep taking it and, you you know, you wake up seven years later and you've spent seven years on a company that was never going to work to begin with. And you see this reflected in startups, you know, five years ago or seven years ago, you saw a lot more companies that were exiting for small amounts of money to other companies, but then that got multiplied dramatically. So you'd see people with five people sort of landing at Twitter at the time or landing at um, Uber or Square or some of these other companies and then seeing 100x growth of that company or 10x growth of that company and benefiting from that. And those types of founders and companies, instead of exiting they just keep going. And so I actually think the worst part of the current capital environment is the way that it's impacting the founders whose companies are not gonna work because they're effectively um, spending a lot of their lives on things that just you know, have no reason to keep going because there's no real product market fit. Um, to your point, uh, part of that is in general, not always, but in general, things that work tend to work early and you wanna add a couple years on top of that if you're dealing with science risks. So if you're building SpaceX, it's gonna take you 10 years to build a rocket. Um, But once you build it, you'll have a massive market, but you can't build a rocket in one or two years. Um, For SaaS companies, you know, often it takes a year to build, a year to figure out sales, and then years three and four is where you start to ramp and see, you know, is it really working or not? For healthcare companies, you usually have an extra two years on top of that because the sales cycles are longer, you're dealing with regulation, you know, there's sort of, they're tougher businesses uh, to build, or I should say on average, they take a little bit longer to build. So there's a couple markets where things just take longer. Um, some hardware markets are like that too, uh, just in terms of the hardware life cycle. So, um, but on average, if you're just building like a plain vanilla software company, within a year or two of launch, you should see whether it's working and working means you're, you're more than doubling year over year every year. And hopefully you're actually growing faster than that if you're in the you know, hundreds of thousands or low millions of dollars in revenue. Um, And if you're not, you should again, go back and ask, am I building the right product or do I have the right go to market? Or at what point do I decide that I should actually sell and free up my time to go and do the next thing?
0: What are the biggest signs in kind of a capital rich environment that you see where where founders almost get diluted or seduced into the idea that the company is working uh, where it's not, right? So one, one aspect or component of that obviously is the ability to continue to raise capital but I think there's more, uh, there's more subtle nuances, right? So in enterprise SaaS, I, I see companies a lot of the time that, you know, have for whatever reason have secured or closed deals with a couple companies, but you know nobody's using the product, right? And mm-hmm. so there's kind of these other kind of nuances or aspects of that that I think can mm-hmm. can be tells also as to you know whether or not re- really what the true kind of trajectory of the company is. What, what do you yeah. see?
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think false trajectories are fundraising and the rate at which you grow your team, which is often closely tied Mm -hmm. to fundraising. Like if you just raise money and you hire more people, that isn't momentum. (laughs) Or if you um, end up in a lot of press, that isn't real momentum necessarily, unless your product really benefits from it, like Slack did early on. Um, So I think the real momentum is, are you seeing repeatable conversion of customers um, into paying customers? And then are you seeing those customers expand their accounts or at a minimum not churn. And so you know, there's this sort of uh, leaky, um, leaky bucket uh, style SaaS startup where you raise tons of money, you buy lots of customers just through having giant sales forces or very aggressive marketing. Um, they sign one year contracts so your sales are up into the right, but then you're just churning through them really fast as renewals come up and you're losing all of them, but you're adding customers faster than you're losing them uh, year over year, because you have all this marketing spend, and you keep raising money to accelerate that. And you know that that also happens with consumer businesses. I mean, that happened with, I think it was Fab, is sort of an e-commerce site. They had kind of a similar yeah. dynamic, except they were doing it through ad spend and consumer acquisition versus you know SaaS uh, sales acquisition. So, you know, in general, um, when you're starting a company, your unit economics are going to be negative, or they might be negative. They don't have to be, but if your unit economics are negative. Um, that may be fine as long as you have a path to converging it because every user you add is actually losing you money. At some point, you need that to cross the line into every user or customer you add is making you money. And um, you want to make sure that you have very positive churn and other characteristics to reflect that.
0: One of the things I I find really interesting, and I want to kind of continue the thread on on the product market fit side that we were talking about, is, is kind of this idea of, you know, if you have, and I think this is something that gets underweighted sometimes, is, If you have really strong product market fit, almost the leniency to basically screw everything else up, right, and still be able to succeed. And oftentimes, Mm -hmm. I think what what I see gets conflated is this idea that you know a company that benefited on on the curve of really strong product market fit maybe did some of these kind of practices or so uh, that ordinarily, without as strong a product market fit, would have kind of screwed the company up. But then the conclusion Mm -hmm. that we often draw. In um, in evaluating these companies or learning mm-hmm. from these companies is, you know, wow, this company did a really had a really innovative practice, you know, and that that might have contributed to their success, right? And it's kind of like mm-hmm. a correlation fallacy, right? Which is mm-hmm. it, that you know that process or that innovation or that kind of you know perspective doesn't really work. Um, and actually, if you didn't have you know insane product market fit, it could tank your company. But it's mm-hmm. kind of these are case examples that we often look at and we say you know wow this is a this is an mm-hmm. amazingly interesting example of kind of an innovation on org mm-hmm. or you know uh, recruiting or this that and the other how do mm-hmm. how do you you know i am curious again from the perspective of you obviously you have one of the very unique vantage points of having seen um, a lot you know <clears throat> early stage to hyperscale of you know some some exceedingly fantastic companies have you have you ever kind of seen that phenomenon or how do how do you how does what i was just saying resonate with you
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I mean, um, people almost get superstitious about the things that um, made them successful, or they'll say, you know what, Um, you know, the the Stripe founders, every time they would meet a a potential customer, they sit down and set up a Stripe account for them. And therefore, that's the way every company will succeed. And it worked very well for Stripe, but it, it may or may not work contextually for another company, right? And so I do think people kind of uh, transfer certain things over that in some cases actually really do work and really are innovations. And then in some cases just won't ever work for your company or startup. Um, so I do think there's enormous amounts of correlation fallacies. or correlation, you know, getting mixed up with causation um, for many companies. Uh, you know, I think the other sort of fallacy is that you can learn a lot from failure. And, you know, the flip side of it is I actually think you can learn a lot more at a company that's been successful than you can at a company that's failed. So, you know, you're gonna have more talent, you're gonna have ongoing attraction of people who are talented and who can operate at scale at the companies that are working. And so you can learn from people who've been through sort of multiple rodeos. As a company scales very rapidly, you get more and more opportunities to do things uh, earlier in your career than you would probably do it if you were in a larger, slower growing company, because suddenly the company is opening an office in London and they need somebody to go run it. And so they choose somebody who's been around for a while to do it. and so I think in general, you're gonna learn and experience and take away a lot more from a successful company than a, than a failed company. Uh, but a lot of people talk about how you can learn a come from failure and you can learn some stuff, but you know, I think it's better to go somewhere
0: that worked. What do you, how do you think about kind of you flip, if you flip the question I just asked, right? And you think about examples of practices that might not have gotten enough airtime, um, mm-hmm. you know, but are highly kind of valuable or actual good practices, right? So let's take the inverse and say, you know, the Stripe kind of signing up a user instantly on the spot. Let's, let's use that as kind of a case example of that actually is a good practice, but let's say Stripe didn't turn into the success that Stripe is, right? So maybe it didn't get as much airtime. What are, what are kind of examples of initiatives like that or, or things like that? If anything kind of pops out into your mind as, you know, this is kind of an obvious one, but it doesn't necessarily get as much airtime.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things that um, people do badly on an average, especially if they're first-time founders, and. Some of them or some people learn um, and eventually they, you know, everybody has to learn this, but it's sort of, how soon do you learn it? And so I almost feel like there's startup lessons that people learn too late. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of them is um, actual like uh, operational and strategic planning. So what are you gonna do this year? Um, You think you're gonna grow 15% month over month? Why isn't 20% month over month? What are your underlying assumptions in terms of what the drivers of your business are? What are new things you can do to accelerate? How fast you're growing? So one is just doing real planning, and that usually takes the company many years to get to, and it's actually valuable to do it early once things are actually working. Before things are working, you can plan all you want, but it doesn't matter, right, (laughs) if you don't have product market fit. Um, Second is realizing that your uh, team and your org needs its own roadmap. So just like you have a product roadmap, you need an org roadmap, and you should be thinking six to 12 months ahead, and so who are the executives that you need to hire how many employees do you, do you need to hire for what things? And that goes hand in hand with a product and strategic road mapping. Because if you actually realize that you can grow faster, you may need certain types of people that you didn't think you needed at certain phases or earlier or later. Um, so that really shifts um, things pretty dramatically. But I think people need to shift from the mindset of thinking that they have one product, which is their product, and then their company is sort of an afterthought. And they need to think that they have two products, the thing that they sell to the customers and the company that they're building. And they need a roadmap for the company that they're building. And then I think the third thing that people need to realize is that startups are a team effort and you as the founders or you as the CEO are not going to be able to do everything and you shouldn't do everything. I was on a panel where I thought there was some really terrible advice given around um, you as a CEO should go and experience every function before you hire somebody for the function. And that's just incredibly unscalable, but also it just doesn't make sense in a lot of cases, right? Like uh, cholera, which I've helped co-found has genetic counselors on the team and they're amazing and they're specialists and they've learned their skill set very well. I shouldn't have gone to a genetic counselor, right? Like that just, that doesn't make sense. Or I shouldn't go and try and run the finance team. I think I should hire somebody competent to do that. It'd be hard for anybody
0: um, to run a company if that was kind of the advice, right? I mean, how many lives do you have to live?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you don't have a lot of time, but also you you don't need to, um, there's other ways to learn what good looks like in a function. And you may make mistakes in hiring somebody around that function, but there's lots of people you can talk to. Investors can help interview people for finance or other things that you may be less well-versed with. But I think it's also this mindset of like um, r- mapping out who that team should be becomes incredibly important to sort of point number two, um, because you know companies in general tend to hire HR and finance um, too late in the life of the company. And I found that more recently, I think people have actually started hiring sales too late, especially if they have bottoms up distribution that's working, they kind of just, just depend on that. When in reality, they should be also building a top-down sales team pretty early if it makes sense for their product and their price point. And so I think there's a lot of missed opportunity on that over and over again in Silicon Valley right now.
0: Let's talk about kind of that strategic planning kind of operational sophistication thread. Um, You know, I I didn't go to business school, you didn't go to business school. We we do share something in common, which is we both worked at McKinsey & Company for a time. I credit that in many senses in in the early part of my career for helping me significantly. So with uh, kind of having a strategic mindset, I often think actually I had that background when I was at an early stage startup, I could have been a lot more valuable. I, I think there's a lot of conversation though about, um, or a lot of aversion in, in tech naturally to that kind of skill set. Um, and I think it comes with the stereotypes, right? Of which, you know, certain are, are probably valid or so. Why do you think it is the case that some of these types of skills, uh, you know, are underrated? And it goes a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, right? Which is kind of this idea of, you know, not needing to reinvent everything from a first principles approach. Right, and being able to take and pull kind of from other disciplines to, to, uh, to enable and empower.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think a few things. One is, I think early in the life of a startup, um, some of that type of planning can actually be too much for the company. And all it really needs is like a three month roadmap and a launch plan, you know? Yep. So I think most of the time, very early on companies don't need that. And founders who have not worked in other environments, you know, you're starting a company straight out of school, you've never been exposed um, to the stage of a company where that's needed and therefore you think it's never needed or you think it's just overhead. Mm. So I think part of it is just um, what you've been exposed to and what you're aware of and then how that ties into um, where in the stage of the life cycle you are and whether you're aware that that a, a shift needs to happen. And sometimes people are aware of it immediately or they hire a great exec who can help with that. And sometimes it takes a really long time and the company misses opportunities because of it. So um, that's sort of one piece of it. Um, I think the other piece of it is that, you know, we founders just think a little bit differently about a lot of things and are very okay with ambiguity and chaos and uncertainty. And and I think that founders um, often project themselves onto their employees. And as you grow bigger and bigger, your employees want a common sense of direction and they want certainty and they wanna know what metrics they are optimizing for and they wanna know about their careers. And they want all the stuff that many founders actually don't care about that much. And therefore they think that their employees don't care about it either. Like, why would they care about that thing? That thing is you know, irrelevant um, to the founder. And so I think that's the second piece of it. As
0: we, as we kind of round out the conversation here, a couple of last points, and I want to switch gears a little bit to your, to your background and, and some of the interesting research you've done on longevity. And I'm curious, you know, at a 50,000 foot level, What have really been kind of the most interesting insights you've found and how has that changed the way that you've lived your life?
1: Yeah, so I guess on the longevity side, uh, there's multiple lines of evidence to suggest longevity is a developmental process um, that can be perturbed. And therefore, it should be um, reasonably straightforward to extend lifespan. And uh, you actually see that in in multiple different experimental systems. So, for example, there's different gene knockouts that uh, will extend lifespan in different organisms between Um, you know, 20% and 3X. So there's a gene knockout you can do in C. elegans, a little worm um, that's used in the lab a lot. that will allow them to live two, three times longer and then they'll sort of crash out as adults. Um, There's, and if if a gene knockout can do something then obviously you can create a drug that mimics that action. Um, There's drugs as well that are FDA approved like rapamycin and metformin that extend lifespan it looks like anywhere between five and 30% of multiple organisms uh, that are evolutionarily conserved. So rapamycin will extend lifespan in mice 10 to 30%, it will extend lifespan in flies and worms and lots of other organisms. So um, these are sort of ancient pathways. And then there's things like caloric restriction that also tends to work across species. So there's lots and lots of evidence that longevity is something that you can manipulate um, with drugs and other factors. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's sort of one of those areas where there just hasn't been a lot of activity, but there's an enormous amount to do. And there's actually an enormous amount of science now known for these areas, but nobody's really translating it into drugs that, that you can take. Um, and so two companies that I think are really exciting that are working on this are BioAge and Spring Discovery that I'm involved with. And I think they're each taking a different approach to finding drugs to, to help sort of um, extend lifespan. Uh, In terms of what I do, honestly, I think the basics today are best, which is, you know, you want to exercise, you want to eat well, you want to sleep, you want to have meaningful relationships with people, you know. Um, So I think those are the basics that tend to be statistically correlated with longer life. Um, I'm not doing any of this, but there are people in the uh, longevity community. And by that, I mean, the the hardcore academic science community who understand uh, the scientific underpinnings well, not the sort of you know, fringe sort of crazy people. Um, but, you know, a lot of the the rational people will take a baby aspirin uh, once a day. Um, they'll take a statin once a day, but I don't do any of that. And obviously people should talk to their doctor before deciding to do anything like that. So, and I, I don't, you know, Drink the blood of teenagers, or God knows what. <laughs> well,
0: it's interesting that the vast. I, I don't recommend are. that. Don't drink blood. <laughs> We're gonna put don't I'll put that, that in the. I'll put that in the title of the podcast. Elod yeah. recommends drinking kids' blood. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the it's the it's interesting, right? Because I think that the vast majority of, of kind of the advice is it, it 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 speaks to kind of human intuition or or human I think thirst in some senses of wanting kind of a quick trick or interesting piece, but it really mm-hmm. is. Kind of get the right sleep, the yeah. right exercise, you know, build meaningful relationships. And, and,
1: and I do think there will be that sort of quick fix. I mean, I do think there will be drugs on the market at some point that yeah, um, can extend lifespan. Uh, and so I, I do think that's just a matter of time. And I think it's largely been like a funding and um, will gap versus a can we do it gap? Like, I think the science is clear that this can be done. Mm-hmm. I just don't think very many people are working on it. And that's one of the reasons I got involved with that area. It just seemed like a giant... Missing hole in terms of what's being done in biotech today.
0: How do you think that's the case? Why why don't you see as many people working on it, et cetera? And I don't I don't say this from the kind of again the kind of classic media defamation of Silicon Valley is you know people aren't working on you know hard problems, meaningful things, et cetera, et cetera. But there's there's obviously nuance to it, right? So why why don't you see as much activity in that space?
1: I think there's three reasons. I think one is uh, a subset of people have an aversion to aging as a disease. In other words, they say it's not a disease; it's a natural process. And so, why would you interfere with it? Um, and in reality, aging is the cause of many diseases, or at least it impacts them deeply. You know, it's it's not a coincidence that outside of genetically caused cancers, most people get cancer between a certain age range. Most people, you know, their vision gets blurry at a, you know in their forties, and you know, there's things that systematically happen at a very specific age for most of the population. And That's just reflective of the fact that certain systems are breaking down in a very ordered way, right? So aging is causing a lot of diseases, but we don't consider itself either a root cause or a disease when it really is. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think the second is that the biopharma industry is really aligned around five or six key areas, cancer and Alzheimer's and a few others, and they don't really stray outside of those areas. So that's why you don't see a lot of drugs being developed for most other things. And part of that is the cost of developing drugs. Part of that is the life cycle. But honestly, part of it as well is that most um, biopharma companies are just really old and therefore not as innovative um, as they could be if you had a very thriving you know, set of new companies that were still run by founders. So let me ask you this, when was the last $50 billion plus biotech started? What year? Or $30 billion plus biotech in terms of a drug development company?
0: I'll take a total guess in the sand. Yeah. Uh, maybe, let's say right around kind of the dot com boom, something around that time frame.
1: Yeah, I think it may have been the 80s with um, Regeneron. Huh. And so it's been, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, 30 years, I guess, 35 years, something like that, huh. since um, such a company was started. And, you know, so imagine if all of tech was composed of there's no google there's no facebook there's no amazon you know you had ibm and you had hp and you had i don't know some old company that we haven't heard of that was dominant in the 70s you know and those were the companies of today we wouldn't have cloud services right we'd have mainframes that you sort of dial into we wouldn't have SaaS. we may not have the iphone or real mobile devices we'd be lacking a ton of stuff right um especially if every startup that was built was built to flip into the roadmap of IBM or the roadmap of HP or the roadmap of sort of name the older company. Uh, And that's not to say these aren't great companies in terms of how they're run today. It's more just they're not the drivers of mass innovation for the technology world, right? Um, And that's basically biopharma today. You have a, a handful of old companies that are all competing with each other but, you know, aren't necessarily as aggressive or innovative as they were when they were started. And then you have most biotech being built or purpose built to flip into the
0: roadmap for a couple hundred million dollars. lot as we as we round out the conversation, I wanted to end with a question um, that related to your dedication in High Growth Handbook, which was you know one of my favorite reads of, of the past year. And your dedication uh, was to your wife and son. And you wrote, "Suddenly everything is possible again." Uh, what what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, so um, it's a quote from a Jonathan Saffron for book. Uh, called, I think it's called Eating Animals or something like that. And uh, basically in that book, he talks about sort of his relationship to his his own sort of young son. And a friend of his sent him a card in this book that basically said, you know, when you look at your um, child, you realize that suddenly everything is possible again. You nice. know, through the lens of their life, they're learning everything. Every potential outcome in life is something that they could experience or do. And uh, therefore. There's this amazing cycle of reinvention and reinvigoration that happens when you have children uh, because suddenly they can they can literally do anything in the world and all the opportunities are open again. So you know that was something that really resonated for me in terms of um, how to think about uh, children and multi-generational cycles and things like that.
0: Well love, uh, this has been a, a really really interesting conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks so much for sharing your insights and, and really enjoyed having you on.
1: Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me and thanks for the great conversation.